Hello, my lovely people, and welcome to The Fletcher Files, a Murder, She Wrote podcast with your host, Monty. So this week, we will be talking about Trial by Error, <laughs> season two, episode 13, first aired January 12th, 1986. And the IMDb summary reads, it's a bad day for the jurors when Jessica is the foreperson of the jury hearing the case of a man claiming self-defense in the death of an enraged husband. Now, this is actually better than I remember, right? But also, this is a play off of 12 Angry Men. And I'll tell you, there was a lot of movement back and forth. There was a lot of dialogue. So my summary isn't exact word for word, but more general because it's definitely an episode you have to watch in order to get all of the intricacies. Now, we have a lot of returners in this episode. We have Doran Clark. And we will remember her as Nancy Earl, or Nan, in Deadly Ladies. In this episode, she is Becky Anderson. We have Lenore Kastoff, and we will remember her as Trish Langley from It's a Dog's Life. In this episode, she's Allie Collins. Also from It's a Dog's Life, We have James Hampton, who played the vet. In this episode, he's Jerry Blevins. We'll also recognize (laughs) from It's a Dog's Life, Gregory Walcott. And he played Isaiah Potts, right? The The guy who claimed that Teddy bit him and he had his uh, um, arm wrap on his shotgun as he was cutting (laughs) wood with an axe when Jessica ran to steal it. Yes, that's him. In this episode, he is Willie Pacecki. We then have Gene Evans. And we'll recognize him as Niels Highlander from We're Off to Kill the Wizard. In this episode, he's Otto Fry. We will also recognize from We're Off to Kill the Wizard, Richard Sanders, who played Arnold Megram, the accountant, right? And in this episode, he's Gerald Richards. We then have Vicki Lawrence, and we will recognize her as Phoebe Carroll from My Johnny Lies Over the Ocean. In this episode, she is Jackie McKay. We will recognize John Chandler as Gilbert Stoner from Murder Takes the Bus. In this episode, he is John Detweiler. And last but definitely not least, we have Alan Miller. And we will recognize him as Phil Kruger from Sudden Death. In this episode, he is Frank Lord. So about half of these returners are jurors and the other half are witnesses. Um, However, Becky Anderson is 
a main character. Now let's get into the rest of the characters and into the episode. We have Prosecutor Tom Caselli, Mark Lee Reynolds, Margot Webster, Defense Counsel Oscar Ramsey, Defense Counsel Max Flynn, Josh Corbin, Lee Callahan, Sally Conover, Fenton Harris, Thornton Bentley, that's a name for you, Drew Naramore, Judge Philo Walker, Dr. Maurice Webster, Cliff Anderson, Arthur Jasper, Stephanie Reynolds, and Victor Asamin. Now let's get into the episode. So we open at an accident scene. The ambulance is there. There is a car that is completely mangled. And they're using not only a circular saw, but the jaws of life to try to extract the passenger out of the vehicle. We see Mark, who is the husband. He was the driver. He has some cuts and bruises, but he is mobile. He's talking. He was able to get out of the car without assistance. However, we find out that the person they're trying to extract from the vehicle is his wife, Stephanie, and she is badly injured. They have her on a backboard and they're trying to get her into the ambulance. And Mark is talking to the EMTs. He's distraught and he's like, she never wears her seatbelt. I should have made her wear her seatbelt. I'm the kid just came out of nowhere. It was a kid on a bike. I tried to avoid him. Oh my God, this is terrible. They get Stephanie out of the car. She's on the stretcher at this point. And she says, I don't understand. Why? And she's asking this to Mark. And he's like, I had to avoid the kid on the bike. He came out of nowhere. I'm so sorry. And the scene ends. The next scene, we're in the emergency room lobby or the waiting room, and Mark is doing the most, but his wife is hanging on by a thread, but she was awake and alert, so there's hope that she's going to make it. The doctor says she will recover, however, she may never be able to walk again because of a spinal injury from this accident. Now, the doctor is trying to get Mark to get medical attention because he has fractured his collarbone, but he's like, no, you know, I just want to make sure she's okay. And so Dr. Webster is like, I can take you in to see her. And Mark is like, no, I can't look her in the face after what I've done. Um, I, I have to go. And he runs off with his left arm just limp on his side. I'm sorry, it's not supposed to be funny, but it's hilarious. I am so sorry. It was funny how just his whole left arm is just dangling and he is skip running. Like he's not running at full force, but he is dramatically running down the hallway of the hospital to leave. A whole mess. Anyway, the next scene, we're at a bar 
and Becky is there speaking with the bartender and Mark comes in and it's interesting that the only seat at the bar is right next to Becky at whatever time of night this is. I think it's at like eight o'clock at night or whatnot, but I don't remember if it's a weekday or a weekend, but that bar is full, but there just happens to be two open seats right when Becky comes in. Okay, moving the plot along. And she's speaking with the bartender. Mark walks in, all still with blood on his face, right? Looking a mess and disheveled. And the bartender, Jerry, is like, uh, were you in an accident? <laughs> oh my God. Like, uh, shouldn't you be in the hospital? And so... Becky is like, oh my God, you're, there's blood on your face. He's like, it was, you know, I did get in a car accident and the other person is really injured. I just, I just need a drink or whatever. So she wets a bar napkin and is cleaning the blood off his face. And I'm like, that is not sanitary at all, but okay. That's what we're doing. In talking about the accident, Mark can't even bring himself to say his wife was injured. He is doing the absolute most. I've said it before and I'll continue to say it. He's doing too much. Anyway, so we then see John Detweiler talking to the bartender and he knows Becky. Both of them know Becky. And Detweiler knows Becky's husband and is like, who is she talking to over there? And the bartender is like, listen, that guy was in an accident. His wife was nearly killed. Like, honestly, it's nothing. And Detweiler is like, uh, I think that her husband would be very upset to hear about this. And so we then go back over to Mark and Becky. And Mark is like, he used to drive race cars. He can't face his wife until morning. He can't believe this. He should have been able to recover from avoiding the young man who was on the bike. And um, just as an aside, we talked about this before in another episode. Being a race car driver and being able to navigate on the road and have quick reflexes, is that a requirement? Like, is that something that they're trained to do? Because I don't necessarily think of that. Uh, When I think of race car drivers, I think of them driving quickly and being able to control their cars at high speeds, but never really thought of them as stunt drivers, which are able to recover from anything so that they can safely crash (laughs) and do stunts. But maybe I'm wrong, but I don't really think of race car drivers and being great technical drivers, but I could be wrong. Anyway, so now it's late. It's after midnight, I believe, at this point. And Becky's like, you know, um, since you can't seem to face your wife to the morning, maybe I can make you a cup of coffee. And 
Mark's like, no, you know, I really couldn't ask you to do that. Well, you know what? Okay. (laughs) And so they leave together. And Detweiler goes up to the bartender and he's like, oh, yeah, that's clearly a sympathy jump. Meaning that Becky is willing to have sex with Mark because he is going through some traumatic situation. And the bartender, Jerry, is like, just mind your business. Detweiler does not do that. Thank you. He's as petty as me. And he's like, I am calling her husband, Cliff, which he proceeds to do. However, Cliff's a monster. So uh, I would not call him. I would probably have a sit down with Becky, though. But Detweiler is also Gilbert Stoner. And both of them were terrible, terrible people. Not the actor, but both of the characters that he plays (laughs) are jerks. So there's that. The next scene, the jury is being sent to deliberate. We find out that Cliff Anderson is dead and that Mark is on trial for that murder and that Mark's defense is that he killed in order to defend himself. So a self-defense defense, right? <laughs> and of course, Jessica is the foreperson because we read the summary, so we know. The next scene, we're in the jury room. And like I said, there's a lot, a lot of dialogue. So this is really the bare bones of it because you have to watch this episode. I said it and I'm gonna keep saying it. <laughs> so they take their first vote. And it's nine for not guilty, two for guilty, and one undecided. Now, as the jury is deliberating, because Jessica's like, all right, so we're not all like not guilty. So let's go over the evidence. And they recall different people's testimony. So that's how this is going to be formatted. So first, they look back on Mark Reynolds' testimony. And the portion where he is questioned, I believe, by the prosecutor about what happened when he found out his wife would be paralyzed. And he said he wanted to die, that he went to the bar to drown out reality by getting drunk. So the ADA, or assistant district attorney, also known as prosecutor, asked him why that bar, not one of the other six on the way between the hospital and the bar that he chose. And, you know, he doesn't really have an answer for that. And Jessica brings that up with regards to what if the meeting wasn't accidental? Why did he choose that bar? That is something that we need to consider. Jessica said that the testimony was straightforward. We find out that Mark was in the bar about two hours, that he claims this was the first time he met Becky, and that what happened before the murder is that they were in bed, they heard yelling in the living room, Cliff busted in the bedroom with a gun, he went after Mark, 
they struggled apparently from the bedroom into the living room and the gun went off. Nobody was shot, right? But the gun went off. Mark found himself with a fireplace poker in his hand, which he used to hit Mark. And at the point that he was down, I don't remember how many times he said he hit him. It may have been once because, you know, you hit people once with a fire poker, they're going to die in this universe. Um, Except if you hit them in the back of the head with a shovel and you are the outgoing sheriff, um, then they don't die. They just get knocked out. So (laughs) anyway, so he said, Mark said he told Becky to call the police When the police arrived, they ended up arresting Mark. He used his one phone call to call the hospital, at which time he was told that Becky died without ever regaining consciousness. Now, we're going to leave that at that, okay? (laughs) Instead of calling... A lawyer who could then call the hospital on your behalf and find out what happened to Becky. He calls the hospital to find out the status of his wife while he is arrested for murder. Okay, cool. So then we're back in the jury room and um, the juror Thornton believes that this guy is guilty and won't hear anything opposed to that. He is firmly in his belief. Now, they reflect back to a part of Becky's testimony that she had to get a restraining order against Cliff. She also stated that she had filed for divorce. The ADA brings up the fact that there was a countersuit by Cliff in the divorce for infidelity. Of course, there are gasps throughout the audience within the courtroom because, oh, you were cheating on him and that's why he wanted to divorce you, but you wanted to divorce him because he was abusive, which is valid on both parts, just saying. But what this brings up is that Becky may have been predisposed to hooking up with a stranger that just happened to be Mark because she was unfaithful in her marriage. Now, she says, well, we were separated at this time, so it didn't matter if I was cheating back before we filed for divorce, but we were separated at this time, and he was staying with Willie Pacecki. So... We also find out from Becky that she's claiming that she never saw Mark before that night. The ADA then asks, well, how often do you take strange men home to sleep with them? Which, of course, is objected to and the objection is sustained, meaning that she does not have to answer that question. But the jury has heard it. You know, they're going to be told to disregard it, but they heard it. And I'm sure it's a question they had themselves. So, you know, honestly, she should have just answered it. I'm just saying. She should have just been like, no, I've never done that before. You know, because now she doesn't have to answer it. You're not supposed to speculate. You're not supposed to guess what the answer would be. 
But me, I'd be like, oh, maybe she do this regular, you know? Okay. So then it wouldn't be, now I have, I'm, there's a moral objection, right? <laughs> but it's like, oh, well, she just picks up random men at bars. So what's suspicious about that? It just happened to be some guy whose wife was in a car accident caused by him, right? Because he was the driver. And while she was dying in the hospital, they were having sex. So I'm not suspicious of this because this is what she normally does. And he was in a very vulnerable space. But if she's never done this before, then it's like, well, now it's super suspicious. But we don't know either way because it was objected and she and sustained. So she didn't have to answer. So now we're back in the jury room and we find out that Jessica is the undecided vote. We then reflect on Fenton Harris's testimony. He was the motel owner. He owns Bide Away. No, I'm sorry, Bide Away. Okay, Bide Away. <laughs> I think he said his wife hated it. Somebody hated the name. He was like, I don't care. That's the name of the motel. And we find out the motel is 15 miles out of town. And just as an aside, no shade, but he has the thickest glasses lenses that I have ever seen in my life, okay? He is a great eyewitness because he can see into the future with those glasses. (laughs) I see this as somebody who wears glasses and thank God that they are able to thin out the lenses because I might be out here looking like that too, so... (laughs) Oh my goodness. Anyway, so he's a comedian too. Not a great one, but he's a comedian too. I'm like, sir, take this seriously, please. This is a homicide trial. And so the prosecutor asked, um, do you remember or recognize anyone in the courtroom? And he's like, well, in my business, it's a good practice to never recognize a customer. Am I right? (laughs) That was a joke. Like, no, sir. Let's be serious. Anyway, so he says, do you mean um, the defendant who um, is sitting at that table over there, Mark Reynolds? Yes, I recognize him. And I've seen him four to six times renting a room at the motel. And so the prosecutor or ADA asked, well, do you recognize anyone else in the courtroom? And he was like, do you mean that pretty little lady over there? Um, yes, I remember seeing her one time when Mark came in, she didn't come in, she was sitting in the car. And so when the ADA asked, well, how long ago was that? The motel owner was like three months. Dun, dun, dun. Lies. Okay. Being exposed. Y'all met for the first time. You real sure. You real sure. You swear. You swear. No, this ain't the first time y'all met. So that really puts at issue the rest of Mark's testimony because why lie about the fact that y'all met before? And so the prosecutor's theory is that Becky and Mark were lovers that conspired to murder Becky's husband. We then have testimony a flashback of testimony from the bartender, Jerry. And he says that he is 
very certain that he never saw Mark before, that Becky is a regular, and he never saw her pick up a man at the bar before until Mark. He also testified, we find out, I don't remember if it was in the scene or later, we find out that Cliff was also a regular and that Cliff's friends were regulars there. So that becomes important a little bit later. In discussing why they chose that bar, um, the juror Jackie or Vicki Lawrence, right? She says they wanted to be seen. But the question then becomes, why did they want to be seen? Jessica brings up the fact that Cliff or his friends were always in the bar and that Detweiler's phone call is what triggered Becky and Mark's plan. We then flash back to the testimony of Cliff's friend, Willie, who he was staying with. And Willie says that Cliff was living with him for the past eight months and that he took off this is Cliff, took off immediately after receiving the call. And we see that when he left, he said, I'm going to kill her as he left, right? And that Cliff was not armed. He did not have a gun when he left Willie's apartment. So we're back in the jury room and Jessica's like, well, where did Cliff get the gun? They then start to talk about the timeline, right? So Jessica points out that the call was at about midnight to Cliff. So he sets off for Becky's apartment, which used to be their apartment, after the call he received at midnight. We then flash back to the testimony of the ballistics expert who says there were powder traces, meaning gunpowder, traces on both Mark and Cliff's hands. One bullet was discharged and one bullet was recovered from the living room wall. So that was the gun going off and the bullet traveling and hitting the wall. Because remember what I said, no one was shot in this situation. The gun was unregistered and only Mark and Cliff's prints were on the gun. Now, Jessica recalls Becky's neighbor's testimony. And so we get a flashback of that, that Cliff's car was blocking his driveway. And then a couple of hours later, he saw an ambulance taking a body away. And he said in his testimony that, of course, he did not confront Cliff about his car being parked over his driveway because he was, you know, a very violent man. And that he applauds or he he's not surprised however he put it that if he had been in Mark's place and he had a fire poker he would have done the same thing because if he had not when Cliff went in there it would have been Mark being taken out in the ambulance a few hours later so that was his testimony the ADA in his closing says that Becky and Mark were not in bed. They were waiting for Cliff, that Mark was the one who had the gun, that they called the police once the stage was set. We find out that one year before the murder, 
Cliff was arrested for drunk driving and the police officer said that he found a gun in the glove compartment. And one of the jurors was like, but I remember him testifying that it was confiscated. And Jessica was like, uh, isn't it likely that a person who had an unregistered gun in his glove compartment before would have replaced it? And yes, that's true. So they then start talking about Mark's ability to have been in this struggle. So they're talking through Mark's version of the incident. And Jessica brings up that Mark's injured shoulder was a result of a broken left collarbone. And that the EMT testified, and we see his testimony, that Mark wanted them to focus on Stephanie and not look at him, all resources to her because she was more injured. And the EMT says that once Stephanie was out, she looked at him and said, I don't understand why, Mark. Why? Well, I don't think she said Mark, but she said why. They also recall the testimony of the doctor who says that with regard to Stephanie, everything seemed to be fine. And then they received an alarm a little after 1 a.m. And that maybe if Mark had stayed, they would have been able to get to Stephanie sooner, but they weren't able to get to her soon enough to resuscitate her and she passed away. Now, Jessica brings up the injured slash broken, it was broken left collarbone. How was he able to struggle if he had the gun in his left hand and which had his left hand prints on it and the fire poker in his right hand, which he used to kill Cliff? Now, Jessica says that she has three problems that they need to focus on, right? One, if you believe the motel owner, then they knew each other before. Two, it is ludicrous to choose the night of this accident to lure Cliff to his death. And three, the timeline doesn't seem to work. Because Mark says there were words, then a struggle, then the gun went off, then he hit him with the poker, and then the police were called. So approximately five to 10 minutes of this complete interaction. So if we believe the neighbor's testimony, a couple of hours later is when the ambulance came versus when Cliff's car was there blocking his driveway. So the next scene is the verdict and it comes back as not guilty. And so of course the prosecutor is like, what in the world? And so the defendant is happy. Becky is happy. You know, they plan to go off into the sunset and are assuming that charges against Becky will be dropped. Right? So, Jessica asked to speak with the ADA and she asked that Becky and her attorney be invited to this. 
Now I will tell you, can attorneys speak to jurors after a trial? Yes, they can. Typically, they will go into the judge's chambers. The the judge will thank them, see if they have any questions, ask them if they would like to speak with the prosecution or the defense. They will bring both of them because honestly, you should not be speaking to jurors um, without the opposing counsel because if they say something... outrageous, then, you know, that's kind of hard to explain. And it's better if you both heard it than you having to make a decision of whether you're going to notify opposing counsel about what the jurors have said. So a one-on-one with the prosecutor is not going to happen by any stretch of the legal system. And definitely not a juror speaking with the prosecutor and an indicted but untried defendant and her attorney. This would never happen. There are all levels of ethical violations in this situation. Anyway, so in order to move this plot along, (laughs) the ADA agrees to these terms. So... We then are meeting in the DA's office with Oscar, who is the defense attorney for Becky, Becky, and Tom, the ADA. Jessica comes in and she explains that the jury concluded that Becky killed Cliff, that the struggle for the gun and the poker were all made up because With a broken collarbone, Mark would have been unable to have done that. That would have been physically impossible for that struggle to have occurred the way Mark said it did. And so Oscar is like, you're saying that my client killed her husband? Well, where was Mark? And Jessica says Mark was murdering his wife at the hospital while Becky was in the apartment. Jessica further states that Mark loved Becky, but his wife was the one with all of the money. So the plan was actually only for Mark to murder Stephanie, right? So Mark purposely caused the crash. He was wearing his seatbelt knowing that Stephanie never does. He was a race car driver, so he knew how to crash the car safely. He only slammed the car into the guardrail or whatever on Stephanie's side so that she would get the full impact and because she didn't have a seatbelt on, would perhaps go through the windshield and die. And so when she did not die, Mark needed an alibi because he now had to kill his wife at the hospital. So this actually worked out better for him in the sense that she ends up dying in the hospital from complications from the accident, but not directly from the accident. So, you know, I guess maybe he would have gotten 
he probably would have had a better chance of getting life insurance this way too, but separate issue. Now, Jessica then goes into the mistakes that they made that blew this perfect plan. One, they were remembered by the motel owner, specifically the one time he saw Becky. Now, if he saw Mark all these times, it would not make a difference, right? Because he didn't know why he was there or who he was with. But because he saw Becky once three months ago and remembered it, that caused their perfect strangers, right? Strangers on a train situation to crumble. Two, Cliff finding out that she left that bar with Mark. Cliff wasn't meant to be killed, but when he came home to just Becky, he ruined Mark's alibi because he could testify that Mark wasn't there. Now, as just an aside, how did Mark get to the hospital? Right? Because did he borrow Becky's car? Because his left collarbone was broken, but he could drive with his right hand and both of his legs were functioning. But his car was totaled. So did he borrow Becky's car? And then so if Cliff got home and Becky's car wasn't there, but Becky was in there, like if her car wasn't there, why would he have even gone into the house? You know, I'm confused. They didn't, they didn't cover that, but maybe I'm thinking too much. Anyway, Becky's defense attorney is like, we're getting out of here. This is crazy, but it's kind of making sense. And so Tom, the ADA is like, listen, it really could have been self-defense. And, you know, maybe we can get a second degree murder charge uh, plea with, you know, a few years with regards to the murder of Stephanie, because she's an accessory to that murder. You know, it's a conspiracy, so she can be charged with the same murder and be held to accountable to the same charges as Mark because it was a conspiracy. Now, the defense attorney is like, oh, okay, we can make a deal? Go ahead, sweetheart. Go ahead and tell him, right? So she says that Cliff was furious. He did have a gun and that she was alone. Mark had been gone 30 to 40 minutes when Cliff busted in. He did not believe that she was there alone. She threatened to kill the man that she went home with and her. He then was threw her down to the ground. She was able to pick up the fireplace poker and she hit him. And at that point, he was dead. Mark returned 30 minutes later. He said, this is even better. And that he can just, being Mark, can admit to self-defense. So she stays out of it. He has an alibi. So this is even better for him. And that um, Mark then began to set up the scene. He cleaned off her prints from the fire poker and put his on there. He then wrapped his hand around the gun as well as um, Cliff's and fired a shot so that gunpowder would be on both of their hands. And he also 
admitted to killing his wife by putting a pillow over her face and because she was so weak from the accident that she didn't even really struggle. And the fact that he is basically bragging about that to his mistress is disgusting. And the fact is, I feel bad for Becky in the sense that... Now, she's not a great person because clearly she was cheating in her marriage, but he was her husband was also abusive. So I'm like, girl, you need to get out. Like if you go, (laughs) if you're bold enough (laughs) to be unfaithful, then you should be bold enough to get the heck out. Like I'm sure he wasn't okay with you sleeping with other men. So I'm going to need you to get out of that toxic situation just for your own health. But not only did she have this abusive husband, But Mark was clearly a psychopath because he was willing to murder his wife to be with you because money was more important to him because he could have divorced her. They had been married for less than a year, I believe. He could have divorced her, but he wouldn't get any money. And his love for Becky was not enough for him to give up any money meaning all of his wife's money, because murder her, you're the husband, you get everything. So yeah, I feel bad that Becky got into this situation with this psychopath trying to get out of a relationship with a toxic, abusive man and ended up with a toxic, murdering man. Um, Yeah, uh, that's that's difficult. That is very difficult. This has to be one of my favorite parts of this episode. So they're in the hallway outside the courtrooms and Mark comes up to Jessica and wants to thank her and, you know, the jurors and that, you know, I'll never forget you. And she's like, I'm sure, I'm sure you won't. And so he walks away and he is then approached by two sheriff's deputies who then place him under arrest. He turns and looks. Jessica is looking him straight in the eye. A slight shake of her head and she walks away because he is being arrested for his wife's murder. He thought he got away scot-free. But no, you're going to jail. Actually, you're going to prison for many, 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 many years because Tom is on it. He's like, I want Mark. Okay. I want him to go down for the murder that he did. Now, Becky, although conspiring to kill Stephanie by giving Mark an alibi, right? She's going to do some years in prison as well. But the death of Cliff was as a result of self-defense. So she would have been if if he didn't need if Mark didn't need an alibi, so let's say Mark had not planned to murder his wife, right? And he was just having an affair with Becky. And they went to that bar and they were just doing a role-playing thing, right? Like spicing things up, like, oh, we just met. And they went home together to her place. They had sex. Cliff finds out because Detweiler calls him. He busts in. And if that really happened and Mark did not have 
tried to murder his wife earlier in the day, so he wasn't injured. That would have been fine. He would not have been, he might have been arrested. He might have been arrested. But then it would have been a realistic situation. There would not have been room for questioning if they knew each other, because what he could do is he could testify that, well, Becky and Cliff were separated for eight months. We started our relationship six months ago. Um, we would go to the Bida Wee Hotel, Motel, Holiday Inn, right? <laughs> and we were just doing a role-playing thing at this bar to spice things up. And we didn't realize that Cliff's friend was there and saw us and called Cliff because the fact is they did not plan for that. In the actual conspiracy, they did not expect Cliff to find out about this. So it's really interesting that they picked that bar so that they would be seen, right? And since the bartender knew Becky, he would remember this interaction as opposed to going to a bar that neither of them frequented so nobody would recognize them and no one would have a memory of these two being there, right? Um, Except if he was bleeding from his face, I think a bartender would remember that, you know, even in the the worst dive bar, that if there was a man with a broken collarbone and like a limp left arm and blood on his face, they would remember. But... They did not choose that bar so that Cliff could be notified and lured to his death. So that's interesting that that actually was not part of the conspiracy. It wasn't, it wasn't strangers on a train where you kill for me and I'll kill for you. And since we're detached from the person we're murdering, it's perfect. No, it was a conspiracy to kill Mark's wife and ensure he had an alibi But, okay, wait, wait, wait. So this had to be plan B because he expected her to die in the car crash, right? This mysterious kid on the bike, he swerves to avoid the kid on the bike who's out at like eight o'clock and pitch black on the highway. And he expected her to die at the scene. So what must have happened is that he had to call Becky after he found out his wife was going to survive, right? So this isn't included. So we got to come to this conclusion. So he finds out his wife is going to survive. He goes dramatically running out of the hospital. He must have gone to a payphone, called up Becky and was like, all right, we need to meet somewhere where we can be seen because I need an alibi because she didn't die in the car accident. So that means maybe because it was this last minute change to their plan that Becky just decided, okay, go to this bar. I can meet you there. I'm on my way. Um, And they know me there, so they'll remember me there. So, and they know Cliff, so they'll know you're not Cliff and that I'm picking up a stranger. So maybe that's why it ended up being that bar for two reasons. And the fact that they forgot that Cliff or his friends frequent that bar and may either, if Cliff was there, it would have been a a scene and they would have never gotten to the house to have him have an alibi so he could go and kill his wife. 
or two, they weren't expecting one of his friends to rat them out and notify Cliff for him to come in and be like, I'm about to murder everybody up in this apartment. So yeah, okay. So now that makes sense because it was a last minute change to their original scheme, which was murder her in the car accident. And this was, you know, last minute um, changes and alterations in order to give him an alibi so he could go back to the hospital and murder her. Um, Okay, I'll give you that. I will give you that. Anyway, so overall, a good episode. This review is very short. I am so surprised. But like I said, there was a lot, a lot, a lot of dialogue and back and forth that you have to see to get the full effect of it because it is a really good episode. I like the way they flash back to the testimony to um, prove points and to answer questions. The fact is that as a lawyer, juries are very scary. Okay, because you only get a few minutes to find out if this person can be fair and impartial, right? And you present your case as best as you can, right? Because it makes sense to you, whether you're a defense attorney, whether you're a prosecutor, whether you're a plaintiff's attorney, whether um, you practice in workers' comp law, whatever it is. That would be a situation where it would be in front of a jury at some point. You know your case very well. And you know the theme of your case. And you believe in your case, hopefully, right? Because that's a big part of it, actually believing in your case. And you then presented how it makes sense to you. You feel like it's understandable and persuasive. And then the jurors go back. And they are discussing things that are not in evidence. They're coming to conclusions based on their personal experiences or personal biases and things like that. And you would never know that they came to this conclusion because they've interpreted the evidence in such a way that you would have never thought. Right. So, you know, in 12 Angry Men, they go over that each juror has some bias that they're basing their decision on. They're basing their interpretation of the evidence on. They're making conclusions based on that conclusions that they should not be making because they're guessing and they're filling in pieces. Um, A lot of times that don't need to be filled in, but they're filling in pieces that are bringing them to the wrong conclusion, you know? And so the fact that this jury went through the evidence provided and came up with a determination that they were not asked to do, that they were not asked to do, but thankfully they did because, you know, justice. But when Jessica says that we listened to the evidence, but that's not what we based our decision off of, That is very scary, okay? The fact that she says the jury determined that 
Mark murdered his wife and that Becky killed Cliff, that's not what you were asked to determine. And the fact that you interpreted this evidence, okay, side note correctly, uh, (laughs) to determine this is very scary because the prosecutor put forth a straightforward case of conspiracy. The defense attorney put forth a straightforward case of self-defense. But you took into consideration all of the testimony and came to a conclusion not only about the case at hand and the laws that you were charged to apply to the facts that were put before you, but making connections and coming to conclusions that you were not asked to do. So as an attorney, this is extremely scary (laughs) that there can be a jury back there. And because the defendant is rich, they're like, clearly he's guilty. Or the defendant is beautiful, petite woman. And it's like, she would never shoot this, you know, six foot three man that she loved eight times, you know, does she even have the strength to do that? Making these conclusions, making these conclusions when that is not what you were asked to do. And that's not what the straightforward evidence was presented. So yeah, I said that. I would tell you. It's juries are very, very scary because you just never know what hidden agendas with hidden biases people have that will steer their interpretation of the facts. Now, in this case, it's not as scary because justice was served, right? Because Cliff's death was a result of self-defense, but the self-defense of Becky. And Mark was arrested and prosecuted for murdering his wife, which was proper and appropriate, as well as Becky serving time and facing consequences for conspiring with him. Now, not every... (laughs) It's one of those things like you like the sausage, but you don't want to know how it's made, right? This is the thing. This is the scary sausage being made. (laughs) Oh my goodness. I had to set aside the fact that... I'm an attorney to be able to fully appreciate this and just focus on my love for Murder, She Wrote. And I do like the fact that they did sit and they did rely on testimony for the most part, right? And that they were all able to get past their biases and listen and actually understand and accept the facts that were presented. So if I watch this as a regular lover of Murder, She Wrote, it's an excellent episode. If I watch this as an attorney that has dealt with juries, um, it's very scary for me. (laughs) But... You have to watch this episode. So this gets my seal of approval. It does. And the funny thing is, it's not on my DVR, but I definitely enjoyed watching it. And I definitely will have to get it on my DVR after this. So anyway, that's that on that. Another 
great episode. It will definitely be on my top five. Hopefully I remember. Because <laughs> season two was a really good season. One was really, really great. Two has some of a lot more of my faves. The top five is going to be real tight race. Okay. <laughs> anyway, so of course you can catch me on Patreon at the Fletcher Files Pot on Patreon. And I have a lot of great content over there. I just put up a review of Martha's Vineyard Mysteries Poisoned in Paradise. Okay. And in a few weeks, I will be putting up Martinis and Mayhem, book five. Yeah, book five of the Murder She Wrote book series. But I have the previous four book reviews up there already. My travel adventures to New England, as well as California. And there will be one for Greece coming up probably in July. So go over there, sign up, get set to hear additional content. Otherwise, I will see you right back here next Sunday at 5 p.m. for Keep the Home Fries Burning. Okay, another one of my faves. So I can't wait to tell you guys about it. I will see you then. Have an amazing week. Bye.